Welcome back to the Vatican Briefing, National Catholic Reporter's podcast covering Pope Francis, the Vatican, and the big decisions facing the global Catholic Church. I'm Joshua McElwee, the Reporter's News Editor. And hello, I'm Christopher White, the Reporter's Vatican Correspondent. We have a special episode for you this week. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Joe Donnelly, a former U.S. Senator and Congressman from Indiana who is now serving as the United States Ambassador to the Holy See. Chris spoke with Ambassador Donnelly about what it's like to represent the U.S. government at the Vatican, especially now that Pope Francis has made a strong call for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas conflict. But before we get to that interview, there is a lot to talk about again this week. Chris, we're speaking on Thursday, January 11th. Three days ago, Pope Francis gave his annual State of the World speech to the Vatican's diplomatic corps, in which the Pope typically highlights his various concerns in global affairs for the upcoming year. But this year, Francis highlighted two kind of pretty divergent issues. What was the Pope most concerned about this year? Yeah, Josh, this, of course, is the big event that happens at the start of every year where representatives from the 184 countries that the Vatican has diplomatic relations with come to the Vatican and hear the Pope give his big address where he really surveys the globe. And I'd say, you know, he touched on a number of issues that we can talk about, but the two that really came to mind were one, he specifically addressed the situation in Gaza and put on this discourse about how in modern warfare, we have this real lack of distinction between combatants and non-combatants. And he really bemoaned the fact that we have civilians being treated as collateral damage. And he said this against the backdrop of just what is this mounting humanitarian crisis in Gaza with some 20,000 Palestinians killed there, another million plus displaced. And the Pope went as far to, to suggest that these were war crimes and that the international community had a duty to, one, not just identify war crimes, but prevent them from happening in the first place. So I think it's fair to view this as a real call to action for the whole international community to respond. And he was specifically pinpointing the situation in Gaza and also extending this to Ukraine with the situation of civilians being killed in, in that almost two-year-long war there. And then the other topic that got a lot of attention, quite different from the situation in the Middle East, is the Pope called for a global ban against commercial surrogacy, surrogate motherhood, specifically saying, you know, that human life shouldn't be the result of some contract. He said it was an affront to the dignity of the mother and the child created through surrogacy. And I think the reason this got a lot of attention is because the Pope, of course, has spoken about surrogacy from time to time, calling it an inhumane practice. But what we heard from him on Monday was the calling for action for an actual ban globally on this it comes at a time where a number of countries around the world, particularly here in Europe and in the Pope's backyard in Italy, are really debating new legislation on this. And I think a lot of people were surprised that the, the Pope waded into this debate very explicitly. That's a good summary, Chris. You did a great job for your piece at ncronline.org, kind of summarizing what the Pope said. My takeaway was a reminder of kind of the incredible scope of the ministry of the Pope in terms of speaking for moral issues. On the one hand, about very serious situations of conflict, Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, Gaza, and calling for a ceasefire in very strong terms, kind of not using the earlier diplomatic language of a pause or some sort of stop in fighting, but an actual agreed upon ceasefire. At the same time, also as a moral leader looking at a moral issue in terms of the ethics of surrogacy and of asking someone else to carry your child, it's quite interesting the Pope has this really huge remit in terms of the kinds of things that he is basically offering advice or offering strong moral guidance on in the world. 
Yeah, anything from climate migration, surrogacy, it was all on the table in this talk. I mean, he talked about his travels over the past year, which in a sense served as a way to surface a number of these issues that are important to him. Obviously, talking about his trip last September to Marseille in France, which was centered around the theme of, of migration. But he linked that, of course, to the situation in the southern border in, in the U.S., and obviously, the Pope had intended very much to be present in Dubai for the UN Climate Summit there. He used the chance, one, to again express his remorse for not being able to attend due to a bronchitis infection, but to say, look, this climate conference revealed to us that this is the decade in which the world has to act in order to stave off a real climate emergency. So just a number of these themes close to the Pope's heart that he used to address in the speech. And you captured quite well the interesting dynamic of the ambassadors with the Pope and later in this episode with Ambassador Donnelly talking about what it's like to be in that room, what it's like to see the Pope in this kind of realm and, and addressing these kinds of issues and, and what he looks like physically as, a, as an 87-year-old man. Also quite interesting is that speech also touches upon what's going to happen in the rest of this year in 2024, the 11th into the 12th year of Pope Francis's papacy. You mentioned in your coverage that there are three or at least four kind of unconfirmed possible trips for the Pope to make abroad. There's a lot of speculation that he might return to Argentina for the first time since he was elected Pope. He hasn't been home since 2013 to his home country. There's other speculation that he might visit Belgium or make a big trip to Oceania, perhaps to Australia, New Zealand, and that kind of a thing. What are you looking forward to in 2024 on the Pope's agenda? Yeah, I think we're speaking on January 11th, and we saw today just the, the president of Argentina posting on social media his official letter inviting the Pope to visit his homeland. This comes after a campaign in which the Pope himself was really very much in the headlines. This is a, a president who previously has had a pretty antagonistic relationship, or at least view, of Francis. They spoke, I think it was two days after he was elected in December. And, you know, I think it was sort of viewed as a reset in their relation. And he said on that phone call that the Pope was, you know, very much welcome to come to Argentina. We'll see. The situation there is quite desperate economically in Argentina. There's obviously their own tensions that have to be worked out. So the trip still feels very much in the air. But I think there are a lot of us speculating, will the Pope visit his homeland finally in 2024? In terms of other trips, the Pope has said that he intends to go to Belgium later this year. The Belgian bishops have confirmed that that is in, in the works. And the primary purpose of that trip, of course, is to mark the 600th anniversary of the Universities of, of Louvain, one of the most prominent you know, Catholic universities in Europe. You know, The Pope would be making his trip there. I think it would be the first trip in almost 30 years by a Pope to Belgium. Pope has said he goes to, to small European countries. That's his preference. And Belgium is, of course, quite small, but it's also the center of Europe. Brussels is almost the capital of Europe, certainly the head of the European Union. So I think the Pope would be sort of doing a bit of a juggling act, paying attention to this small local church, but also being in the heart of Europe. And then, as you mentioned, this very big, bold, audacious trip for an 87-year-old to Oceania. A number of countries are being tossed around, uh, you know, Singapore, Indonesia, Timor-Leste, Papua New Guinea. These are all countries. The Pope has described the trip as a trip to Polynesia. So unsure exactly how that trip would play out, but it looks like it would be a long trip. We'll see if it happens. Other rumors have been, you know, Vietnam has been mentioned as a possibility. We will see. This is a pope who likes to get out of the Vatican, and those are just things happening outside of the Vatican. There's plenty yet to keep him busy at home as well, so <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> you know, as we talk about the year ahead, we're thinking about what the pope will do next year. We can also think about what he did last year at the very end of the year. We should mention that he made some huge waves with the Vatican's December 18th decree, officially allowing Catholic priests to offer blessings for couples in same-sex unions. 
or for straight couples who have been divorced and remarried. Since that decree, we've seen a wide range of responses from the world's Catholic bishops. Some have been, I think to put it politely, not so welcoming. We reported at ncronline.org about how some bishops in Eastern Europe have told their priests not to utilize the decree. Some in Africa have spoken more bluntly, saying it goes against God's law. And today, Chris, just hours before we're speaking, the Pan-African and Madagascar Bishops Conference put out a letter that they said had been approved by Pope Francis and the cardinal who leads the Dicastery Office at the Vatican, basically giving them wiggle room to decide whether or not to implement this decree and kind of leaving it unclear how it's going to be implemented in Africa. How have you seen this, Chris, and what do you see at play here? It's interesting, Josh. I mean, you captured well the tensions felt in that document itself. It's a you know roughly five-page document coming out today from Africa. And the headline of it is, No Blessings for Homosexual Couples in the African Churches. So quite strong in terms of the direction, but we see within the text, you know, discretion being left up to bishops and local dioceses there. But the strong response that we've seen ever since this decree came out from the Vatican's doctrinal office on December 18th, Eastern Europe and Africa have been among the most vocal sort of reactionary voices to this, particularly in Africa, where, you know, there are a number of countries where homosexuality is criminalized. There seems to be tensions there between the church allowing for, you know, gay couples to (laughs) receive a blessing in countries where the idea of even being openly gay could be subject you to the death penalty. It's quite extraordinary. And I think we're going to see kind of as this year continues even more interest and maybe more statements from bishops. There haven't been a lot of statements from U.S. bishops about the decree. Largely, it's been kind of waiting and seeing what bishops might say. We've seen stories of priests now going forward and offering blessings to same-sex couples. And I think as the year goes on, and especially as we prepare for the second assembly of the Synod of Bishops, uh, probably this October, we could see a lot more in play. One of the things that the past few weeks have reminded me of a bit, it's not an exact comparison, but after Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis's 2016 apostolic exhortation after the two synods on the family that allowed sort of a, an opening for communion for divorced and remarried couples, we saw bishops' conferences draft their own guidelines in, in response to that. And some of them, you know, I think back to Argentina and Malta had very explicit guidelines saying, you know, we, we're allowing for, you know, discernment of priests to give communion to divorced and remarried couples, others such as, you know, Philadelphia and the United States being, you know, quite closed and opposed to to that opening. Over time, I think the interpretation of that document has become very clear that there's a lot of pastoral discretion when it comes to the question of communion for divorced and remarried couples. And I think that is what this original December 18th declaration from the Vatican is aimed at, is maximizing pastoral discretion on the question of gay blessings and other forms of what the Vatican terms as irregular situations. Yeah, I think we've covered a lot of ground here, but the end result is kind of stay tuned. Watch ncronline.org for what happens next or what Bishop says what next. And in the meantime, maybe we can take a break and we'll be back with Chris's interview with Ambassador Joe Donnelly. Joining us on the Vatican Briefing today is Ambassador Joe Donnelly, the United States Ambassador to the Holy See. Ambassador Donnelly arrived in Rome in March 2022 and officially presented his credentials to Pope Francis on April 11, 2022. Previously, he represented Indiana in the U.S. Senate from 2013 to 2019 and served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2007 to 2013. He's also a proud graduate of the University of Notre Dame, where he received his bachelor's in government and also his law degree. 
Ambassador Donnelly, thank you for joining us on the Vatican Briefing today. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's a real honor to speak with you. you. You arrived as ambassador to the Vatican after a long career in law and in the U.S. Congress. Could you tell our listeners how you ended up here as the second Catholic U.S. president's Vatican ambassador? Well, President Biden and I had, um, had worked a lot together. Uh, both in when I was in the House and in the Senate, and we became close friends. And we worked on healthcare together. He was critical to saving the auto industry in 08, 09, 010, which in my home state of Indiana was like the heartbeat in my district. We had a Chrysler plant with over 5,000 people that was in question of whether it would survive. And so we worked on a lot of issues together, um, developed a real friendship and a real bond of trust. And after he was elected president, um, he had said to me during the campaign, don't get too involved in anything else. I might call you. And I was like, okay. And then I just kind of went off and lived my life and tried to help him be elected. And in around June of 2021, I received a call from the White House and they said, the the president may be calling you and this is what he may be calling you about. Would you be willing to serve? And when the president calls, you say yes. And when the president is your friend, you say yes. You arrived here at the Vatican at a really critical time. I believe one of your first events was for a Mass for Peace celebrated by Cardinal Parolin, the Vatican Secretary of State, here at St. Peter's Basilica, just after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in early 2022. How has that shaped your priorities here in terms of U.S. Holy See relations? I actually landed that morning, and the first time I was ever in St. Peter's was for that Mass. It's shaped so much because we also walked into a situation where some members, you know, at the Vatican were talking about, well, this this is in part because of NATO and similar things, and clearly it was not. And so our job became making sure that we help provide as much information as possible so there could be a clear understanding of what Russia had done, that Russia had invaded Ukraine. One of the interesting things in yesterday's presentation by Pope Francis was that he said the Russian Federation invaded Ukraine. And the Ukrainian ambassador, Andrei Urash, who's become a very close friend, afterwards said to me, he goes, that's the clearest they've ever been about it. And so we've been able to continue to provide them with information. They've worked very, very hard in trying to stand, the Vatican has, stand up for the Ukrainian people and are now speaking with a very, very clear voice that Russia has attacked Ukraine. And as uh, so many in the Vatican have said, Archbishop Gallagher, the, the whole diplomatic team, Cardinal Zuppi, has said that they believe in a just peace. And a just peace is that Russia leaves and goes home. Ambassador, you just mentioned the Pope's address yesterday, and this is the, the address he gives every year to the diplomatic court, sort of his state of the world address. You've spent a lot of time in Congress, and you've had to sit through a lot of State of the Union addresses as well. So before we even talk about the content of the Pope's speech, how does this annual event compare to past speeches you've heard? Is it like a State of the Union, or is it different? It is. One one difference is that for the State of the Union, some of the members would go four hours early so that they could sit on the aisle so that they would be seen when the television showed the president walking down. <laughs> we all knew who they were. We all laughed in advance. It was almost like a like a little betting parlay where you'd go, well, so-and-so will be sitting there and so-and-so will be sitting there. But it was it was very similar because of the gravity of it. One thing I, I will also say as an aside is that the Pope looked healthier than he's looked in a very long time. 
He is walking. He seems to have lost a significant amount of weight and overall looks, looks much better than he has even a year ago. But the gravity of the situation with Ukraine, with Israel, with climate change, with the challenges we have around the world, it's a, it's, it's a real moment of decision in a lot of places. When we heard the Pope's address yesterday, he really surveyed the entire globe looking at a number of conflicts. When you think back on that 45-minute speech, what immediately struck you as something that resonates with the U.S.'s top foreign policy issues right now? Well, much of it comes down to a couple of words, freedom and peace and stability and the ability for folks to be able to live with their beliefs and to be able to raise their families in safety and security. That's what this was about. You look at Ukraine, where Russia invaded, has kidnapped, we think, over 30,000 children now, Ukrainian children that they have taken, that Russia has lost, we think, between soldiers killed and soldiers maimed that will never be able to return to the battlefield, over 400,000 now. Think of that. And on the Ukrainian side, probably over 200,000 for no reason at all. No reason at all other than the hubris and the arrogance of someone who is Vladimir Putin is a butcher and he wants what he wants. The situation in Israel, you look and people at a music concert, just sharing love for one another, attacked by Hamas terrorists for, again, no reason other than they could. So you watch this and it is heartbreaking, but our job is in the United States, we stand for liberty, we stand for freedom, and that's what we'll continue to do here at the Vatican because we have representatives from all over the world and we have values to live up to as we conduct our daily business. Since the October 7th attack against Israel by Hamas, we've heard the Pope say that Israel has a right to defend itself. He's called for the release of hostages, but he's increasingly ramped up his rhetoric about the humanitarian situation in Gaza, including yesterday when he called for a ceasefire on every front. How does that align with U.S. foreign policy right now? Well, it, it aligns in very significant ways that we've both said Hamas is a terrorist group and has caused this attack. In the United States view, Hamas can never be the government of that area again, that Israel has a complete right to defend itself. But in that process, they also have an obligation to protect the citizens of Gaza, that both our Israeli brothers and sisters and our Palestinian brothers and sisters have the right to try to live in peace. And so that is what we hope for. That's what we work to achieve. You have seen President Biden call for pauses, humanitarian pauses. Those were um, continuing. That Those weren't ended by Israel. Those were ended by Hamas by refusing to provide the names of some of the people who were kidnapped and taken. And so the idea was we would have these pauses, we would work to try to bring the hostages back home, and Hamas was the one who canceled that out. And so we believe in pauses, we believe in doing everything humanly possible to keep the people of Gaza safe, and, and that's what we try to uh, accomplish every day. We've heard the Pope speak very strongly about civilians being treated as collateral damage, and he linked this to his calls for a ceasefire. Some people in the Vatican have really called for the U.S. to get behind a ceasefire. So what would you say to those who believe that the U.S. is really missing a chance to speak or act prophetically in this moment and do that, to call for a ceasefire? I will tell you that we have leaned very much forward in talking to Israel on the things that we feel makes sense, which is do 
everything humanly possible to protect um, civilians. That they are looking, if you were Israel, um, over 1,200 people were killed. Um, if you put that in terms of our home country, I think it comes out to, if it was based on our population, that would be about 30,000 killed in one day. Think of that. That's the same impact it would have in our nation. And so we are we are working tirelessly to solve this. You see Secretary Blinken has traveled nonstop. The president has worked nonstop to try to coordinate with the Israeli government to, to tell them, look, you really have to focus on protecting these citizens, that we stand for your right to protect your country, to defend yourself, but at the same time, how do we save the lives of the children of, uh, of Gaza? Now, yesterday, we also heard the Pope talk about the situation in Ukraine and the victims of this war that are being treated as collateral damage. You mentioned earlier the children, and I know you've spent a lot of time working on this issue. You've gone and met with the president, with Cardinal Zuppi, the Pope's representative on this front. What can you tell us about the U.S.'s efforts in collaboration with the Vatican to really regain a greater sense of awareness of what's happening to these Ukrainian children that have been abducted, kidnapped, and taken to Russia, and the efforts to possibly get them back? This is an ongoing effort, and we continue to... um to work with Cardinal Zuppi, Cardinal Paroline, and team there at the Vatican on an almost daily basis. And you have seen some of the children be returned. It, it is fair to say that for those children who have been returned, this effort has been part of bringing them home in, in almost every single case. Also involved are the nuncios, which are the, in effect, the Vatican ambassadors to Russia, the Vatican ambassador to Ukraine, where they may not, the countries may not be speaking to each other, but talking to each other through the nuncios. But it's, it's an ongoing effort. We have lists of children we work every day to try to bring home. And so I expect that there will be more in the future, but they've taken 30,000 children. It, it's the heartbeat of a nation, your children. It, it is what you, what you look towards every day is how do I make life better for our kids so that their generation can have it better. And here they just took the kids. They sent them to camps in Russia. They sent them to camps in Crimea and are, are in effect trying to re-educate them. Now let's switch to a different topic briefly. The COP28 climate conference. This was a huge priority for the U.S. Uh, I, I remember when Secretary John Kerry was here to meet with the Pope about this conference over the summer. And the Pope, of course, wanted to be present there in Dubai last month, but had to cancel due to a bronchitis infection. Yesterday, the Pope said that the COP28 climate summit revealed that this is the decade for seriously addressing climate change before it's too late. In terms of what comes next, how do you see the U.S. partnering with the Holy See to really tackle this crisis? Well, I, I think we're very closely aligned on this. I, you know, I, I look at Pope Francis and I, I say, so how is he thinking on this? And, and I think part of how he thinks on it is this planet is God's gift to us. And when you're given something, you have a responsibility to take care of it. And you have a responsibility to not abuse it. And so that's what all this is in line with. And we agree with that in the United States, that when, when folks look at this, you know, we've had how many of the hottest summers ever, year after year. And we have a responsibility, not only to the planet, but to our children, that we leave this planet in better shape. And I think people get that. And there's a significant effort across the board to try to take the steps necessary to, to in effect, stabilize and then try to return to where we were. 
When you think back to the Pope's address, he was really going all across the globe and surveying every issue facing us. Are are there things that he said that you think maybe went unnoticed that really caught your attention? One in particular, and that is he talked about voting. And um, having been someone who (laughs) had his name on a ballot on more than one occasion, um, you know, the... I laughed. Somebody said, well, how do you think the next synod's going to turn out? Um, and, and you know, we hope Pope Francis is around. A friend of mine said, I hope he, he becomes 162 years old. And I said, I bet you he doesn't hope for that. <laughs> but the, the, the old saying we have is, tell me who votes, I'll tell you who wins. And so that's why when people wonder what's one of the most important things they have, it's their right to have their voice heard in our democracy that I could look on an election day and see the turnout in various areas. And before a vote was counted, I could tell you how the election was going to go, because I knew that if all these people turned out here to have their voice heard, that an election would go this way. And so it's your chance to change the destiny of America, to, to vote for freedom, to stand up for the democracy we believe in. And uh, that's what the Pope believes in as well, is, is that every human, it doesn't matter if, you know, you're, you're Jeff Bezos with, uh, you know, $477 billion and a 500-foot yacht, you have one vote. And the person in my hometown of South Bend, they have one vote too. And we have an equal voice in this democracy. And so no matter what you have money or no matter what you have possessions or whatever, your voice is not any more important than all of our friends and neighbors who pick up a lunch bucket every day, work so hard. People I was lucky to represent, um, a hardworking, uh, in many ways, a blue-collar district that I felt like the luckiest guy in the world to represent the best people in the world. And that's what this is about. That's how you, that's how you advance. Is It's hard to listen to your complaints if you're not willing to take the time to vote and have your voice heard. I think we have half the planet going to the polls this year with over 50 nations holding major elections. Of course, we have one in our home country that we'll be following very closely. What's so funny, you talk about that, and in every meeting I go to here in Rome, I sit down and they go, so tell us about your election. <laughs> As a journalist, I get the same, same thing, so I promise you we'll be following that very closely here at the National Catholic Reporter. Ambassador Donnelly, thank you so much for joining us on the Vatican Briefing and having us here in your home. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's it's a real privilege. And for me, I'm only second generation. You know, my grandparents were immigrants to this country, to our country. And it just tells the power of America and the power of dreams is that my grandparents who would do everything they could to put a dollar together to give a church, their grandson is the U.S. ambassador to the Vatican. They wouldn't believe it if they knew me, but but it did happen. And, and that's the power of America, is that any dream can come true. Thank you, Ambassador Donnelly. Thank you. We are so grateful that we had the chance to be joined today by Ambassador Donnelly. Chris, I was really struck by the overall scope of the ambassador's experience 
and his sense of what it's like to represent U.S. interests at the Vatican and to be in a room with a pope like that, where the pope is addressing basically the entire world through the Vatican diplomatic corps. I thought it was quite clear from what the ambassador said to you in terms of the ongoing conflict in Israel and Gaza that it's quite a delicate moment, that the U.S. is walking a fine line in terms of wanting to maintain support for Israel, but also recognizing the gravity of the humanitarian situation on the ground and and the popes and, and other moral leaders' calls for a real sincere ceasefire. Yeah, that, that came across very clearly both uh, in, in the Pope's initial remarks uh, on Monday and then obviously in the ambassador's reactions to it. I, I also was interested in the way he highlighted the Pope's quite explicit mention of the Russian Federation as being responsible for the war in Ukraine. And what we've seen here in the past few days in Rome, both you know Ambassador Donnelly, but also the Polish ambassador and the Ukrainian ambassador picking up that line as well in various interviews that they've given. I think it's quite clear that in this moment where there is sort of flagging support for Ukraine in various pockets, particularly when it comes to questions of, of funding. This war effort, them wanting to sort of, you know, elevate the Pope's words of pointing the finger at Russia and who is at fault here. We'll see how, you know, we've got a situation here in the world with two major wars happening. And obviously, the Vatican is keeping its eyes uh, on both wars and quite concerned. And we'll certainly see how they play out in the coming months. And as things develop again, you can be sure to follow Chris. Chris is reporting at ncronline.org and follow all of our work at National Catholic Reporter. This seems like a good place to wrap up today's episode. Thank you really for joining us on the Vatican Briefing. It's a new year, and we are going to be on a more regular production schedule. You can look forward to new episodes in your feeds about every other week. In the meantime, you can find our show notes and all of our work at National Catholic Reporter at ncronline.org. And please, if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or however you listen. It really helps. Until next time, you've been briefed. The Vatican Briefing is a production of National Catholic Reporter. John Grasso is your executive producer. Joshua McAlee and Christopher White are your producers and hosts. The editing was done by Angie Von Slaughter in conjunction with David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Today's music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast and NCR's future media initiative are made possible in part by the generosity of Bill and Jean Buchanan.